This morning, as you can see above me, we're going to begin a new series, a series through the, the Song of Solomon. I've been thinking about this series for several years now, actually. Sometimes, as I think about this series, it was with eagerness. Sometimes it's with trepidation. Uh, the Song of Solomon is probably the most neglected book we have in our Bibles. Rarely is it preached. Um, I don't even know that we read it privately as often as we read other parts of the, the Bible. And this lack of attention has led to my eagerness for us to have this series here. I also recognize that, unfortunately, there are some notable exceptions to the neglect of this book. And those exceptions are among preachers who have kind of made a name for themselves focusing on this book. Or at least they've drawn attention to themselves. I'm not sure a name is what I'd want to go with because they've used this book as focal point in their, their ministry in often inappropriate ways. One well-known preacher has used this in a manner more than to edify. Uh, sermons that are laced with profanity and, and graphic sexual descriptions. And those are always inappropriate. Especially when they're from the, the sacred desk of the pulpit being presented to God's people. It's been a fear that somehow by opening this book, we'd in some sense be associated with that kind of a, a, a handling of it that has led to trepidation about this series. Still, this morning I want to begin our series. My, my goal is to do that. My plan is to work halfway through this book before Christmas, and then we'll set aside for Christmas holidays, and, and we'll finish it next year. Uh, before we actually move into the book, though, I want to address a question that may be in your minds today. If not, I'm going to put it in your minds, so it will be there. The, the question of why? Why a series on the Song of Solomon? Uh, I've already suggested the, the Song of Solomon, or I'm just going to call it the song most of the time because Song of Solomon gets a little clunky. So the, the song has, has seldom found its way into the pulpit. You might be wondering, well, if that's the case, why are we not following the, the wisdom of church history? Why should we be different? Why, why this series? Well, I want to give four answers to that question before we actually open it this, this, this morning here. My, my first answer is simply that the song is part of Holy Scripture. It's part of Holy Scripture. The, the song is in the Bible. We, we have it in our, our holy book. We have it inspired by God. It's been preserved by God's providence for us. Uh, I'm sure we all know 2 Timothy 3.16 that says all scripture is profitable. In other words, all scripture is beneficial. That, that it's given to us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Well, the song has to fit under the umbrella of all scripture. It's part of what God has given it, so we neglect it at our peril. The, the fact that it is in our Bibles is sufficient reason alone to, to work our way through it. At the same time, I, I do recognize that this series may present some personal difficulties for some of you. Uh, I'm sure that we all know that this book is about marriage and intimacy. That's, that's the topic. Th those things may not be part of your life. Some of you may have a desire for marriage, but, but God has not brought that into your life. Some of you have a marriage that has left a bad taste in your mouth, and that may be coloring your, your impressions because of these past failures. I, I know as I look out, there's widows and widowers, and 
A discussion of marriage may remind you of the loneliness that, that is part of your life. Uh, my guess is there's probably also at least one or two people here that, that God's given the gift of single, singleness to. And, and for that reason, you have no desire for marriage. That makes this topic seem irrelevant. Look around, there's also a few young people here. And for the young people, marriage may be a remote possibility, but it's not central to your concerns right at this time. All of that is to, to say that I know that this series will resonate differently for each of us based on our circumstances. Still, none of these realities change this first answer to why we need this series. The song is in our Bibles, all of our Bibles. That, that means that it has a message for all of us. Regardless of our personal circumstances, we need this, this book. The, the song is part of Holy Scripture. That, that's the first reason for this series. Number two, marriage and intimacy are human. They're human. God designed marriage and intimacy as part of mankind. He designed mankind for these things. And in fact, as soon as we read about man's creation, sexual intimacy is implied as God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That, that command by, by God's design, it, it requires sexual intimacy. Moses adds a clarification then at the end of, of chapter 2 of Genesis. That this intimacy that, that God intended is within the context of a heterosexual, monogamous marriage. We read, Moses says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God created us with a desire for sexual intimacy, and he gave us the institution of marriage in which we can rightly fulfill that desire. Both are core to our humanity. They're, they're displayed throughout the pages of scriptures having God's blessing. So as men and women who want to understand God's plan and purposes for our lives, we, we, we cannot neglect this topic. The, the song as a book provides a significant portion of God's teaching regarding marriage and, and intimacy. It, it provides teaching regarding our humanity. In the song, we see that sexual intimacy is for joy and celebration. We, we see that God has given it to us to express our commitment in a covenant relationship of marriage. We need to understand these things from God's perspective through his revelation so that we understand our humanity. That leads to my third answer of why we need this series. Marriage and intimacy are human but we realize that sin destroys both marriage and intimacy. Sin destroys. Sin. Sin entered the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Intimacy is introduced in Genesis 1. Marriage is introduced in Genesis 2. In Genesis 3, we have sin. And it destroys the harmonious intimacy that the God gave Adam and Eve from the very beginning. Immediately, they become self-conscious. Immediately, they become aware of their nakedness. God informed them that, that sin would impede the, the marital relationship as well, and, and they'd have strife in place of harmony. This is the world we live in. 
a world that's broken by sin, a world that's corrupted in, in, by sin everywhere we look. We, we live in a world that seeks to, to separate sexual intimacy from marriage, a, a world that seeks to use sexual intimacy for personal pleasure. We, we live in a world that, that seeks to transform marriage into a, a self-centered, self-serving matter of convenience. No longer monogamous, no longer exclusively heterosexual. Sexual intimacy is presented by our world as a tool for personal fulfillment, and marriage is simply a matter of expediency. This is the world we live in. This is a world that influences our thinking day after day after day. A world corrupted by sin. Some of you may wonder why I would undertake this series on a, a Sunday morning, a time when we have a mixed audience, an audience that includes young people. After all, it's well known, and many of you probably know, that, that Jewish rabbis would not allow young men to even read this book until a certain age, let alone discuss it. I, I read one commentator this week that, that argued that this book should only be taught in, in a controlled setting that was exclusive to married couples. Some of you may share those same scruples. Well, I believe those scruples go beyond the scruples that God holds. God gave us this book. I believe we need this series on Sunday morning because of the world we live in. All week long we are inundated with sinful messages from our world regarding sex and marriage. We, we are so deadened to these messages. We don't even blink an eye when we see people climb in and out of bed on every TV show and movie that we watch. We're not the least bit shocked when we see two men or two women portrayed as couples in advertisements. All week long, sin-filled messages about sex and marriage, they, they pound on us, including on our young people. The only place where these topics are not addressed is in the church. The, the one place where the right message should be found. I, I fear that the church's neglect of the song is, is part of the problem when the song should be part of the solution. Sin destroys both marriage and intimacy. That's reason number three for, for this series. Number four. The song illustrates ideal love realized in our Savior. What we need is a loud counter voice to the corrupted message that the sin has unleashed in this world. The, the song gives us that voice. The, the song shows us what purity in love looks like. It shows us what commitment in love looks like. It shows us what intimacy in, in righteous love looks like. It shows us ideal love. What, what we see in the song is how God intends for men and women to love and enjoy one another. What we see is, is a, a perfect ideal picture of, of love as God intended for it to be. Now, because the song is God's ideal picture of love, it does point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is love at its ideal. 
Now, now there has been a long history of reading the song as an allegory of Christ in the church. Quite likely, some of you may have heard this approach to the psalm. And, and allegory means that things stand for other things. The, the young woman, in the allegorical approach to the song, um, the young woman is the church. She's the bride of Christ. The, the man is Christ himself. And the song, then, is an allegory of Christ's love for the church. Of course, if we go further back in interpretation uh, history, we also find that the Jews had a similar allegorical approach, except then it was God's love for Israel rather than Christ for the church. The, the problem with an allegorical interpretation of anything, it doesn't matter what it is, the allegorical interpretation, it tells us more about the preconceived notions of the interpreter than it does about the, the text itself. Allegory takes us into the world of imagination rather than study. So let me be clear. The, the woman in the song is not the church. The man is not Christ. They are a man and a woman. They are two people in love. In love is God intended for a man and woman to be in love. At the same time, Paul does tell us in Ephesians 5 that, that marriage is designed by God as a picture of Christ's love for the church. Marriage pictures it. Our, our Savior is the embodiment of love. He, he is the manifestation of perfect love. So as we look at this ideal love in the song, as we see this manifestation of, of ideal love there illustrated at the human level, that can point us to the perfect love of our Savior. We, we see a joy-filled love. We, we see a sacrificial love. We see a committed love. We see a pure love. All of that informs us of the love for our Savior. Illustrations are intended to help us understand complex and, and abstract ideas. They, they help us understand things more fully. That's why we illustrate. Well, that's what the song does for us. It gives us a, a vibrant illustration of, of ideal love. We, we don't have to allegorize the, the text. What we need to do is appreciate the text. Uh, appreciate for what it reveals about love. As we see intimate, committed, pure love come to life in, in the stanzas of the song, as we see it develop between this man and this woman, we can understand the love of our Savior more fully. And that should be our goal every time we gather for worship coming to understand the love of our Savior more fully. The song illustrates ideal love, realized by our Savior most fully. That's the fourth answer that, that I will give to the question of, of why this series on a Sunday morning. Now, I hope your anticipation has been, been provoked just, just a little bit through these answers. I, I hope it's been raised. So now if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the song, I, I want to begin our series with the first sermon, to, to find a guy. To find a guy. Don't, don't worry, um, I've had a long pre-sermon. That, that doesn't mean I'll have my normal length sermon. We'll shrink it down just a little bit this morning. But we will begin looking at the, the song with To Find a Guy. That this morning we're not going to go too far into the song, but, but we will begin looking at the, the first eight verses. As we look at the first verse, the first thing I want us to consider is, is approaching the Song of Solomon. 
You might say that's what you've been talking about all along, but now I want to look more specifically. I have already indicated that we will not approach it allegorically. Still, there are several other suggestions that have been made throughout church history regarding this song. The most common is to think of it as a drama. Think of it like a stage production. Imagine that you have a drama up here and people are acting out the story. Some suggest that there are two main characters in the drama, a man and a woman, and then there's a chorus of friends of the bride. The, the song then is interpreted as this drama that depicts their romance and, and their marriage. Others suggest three main characters, that you have a young woman, a young man, and Solomon. The young man is a shepherd boy, and Solomon's the king of the country. In, in this view, the, the young woman loves the, the shepherd boy, but King Solomon comes along and he attempts to take her into his harem. He hopes to woo her affections away from the young man. And Solomon fails, and, and love wins when Solomon releases her to, to return to her true love. Now, you might already gather that I'm not convinced of either of these dramatic approaches. Look very carefully with me at the first words that we have recorded in the song. The very first words are the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs. In, in Hebrews, in, in Hebrew, these words form a superlative. Now, a superlative is, is the idea that we um, express by putting an EST ending on the word. We talk about the, the largest or the biggest or the greatest or the prettiest. The EST says it is the, the, the highest of all things in its class. It's the first in its class. Think of King of kings or Lord of lords, that, that phrase says that Jesus is the, the, the king above all other kings. He is the Lord above all other lords. There is no equal. Well, this phrase, the song of songs, suggests that this song has no equal. It is the best of the songs. It is the most outstanding song. We might say it is the greatest love song ever written. I believe it's significant that this book is entitled A Song. There, there is absolutely zero evidence in archaeology that dramatic pr- productions of any sort were part of the culture of Israel or any of the other nations that surrounded Israel at this time in history. Dramatic theater-type productions, they come later in history as far as what archaeology is able to determine. Now, I know that I have personally echo the idea of drama from other places, but as I've studied that more, I don't think that's what we have going on here. There there's, is a lot of evidence, though, that songs were a large part of the culture of Israel. Songs were a large part of the culture of the nations around them. They, songs was one of the primary art forms that all the nations of that era developed. As I've studied this book carefully over the past weeks, I have troubles finding a story development within the the book that, that would be necessary for a dramatic production of any sort. And as I said, I've echoed the idea in other times when I've taught this, but as I've studied it, I can't find that story. And I can't find that flow. Like I said, the, the presentation that this, if this would be a woman falling in love with a shepherd boy being stolen by Solomon to his harem and Solomon not being able to woo her, letting her go back. I don't find that story. Ancient Israel clearly understood narrative. They understood stories. 
Think about your Old Testament. Your Old Testament is, is written with many, many recorded stories. But that story flow is lacking in the song. Every time I read the song, I'm reminded of my experience the first time my wife and I saw the musical Cats. I know I've told this story before, but you may have not remembered it or you may have not heard it. When we saw the musical Broadway show Cats, I did not know anything about the musical before I saw it. I sat there watching the first part of the musical and then intermission rolled around. And at intermission, we're standing, stretching, and my wife asked me, what do you think? And my answer was, I am so confused. She was like, what? I said, I cannot figure out what's going on. I, I, I've missed something somewhere. I, I don't know what's happening. What, what's happening here in the story? And she just started laughing at me. She, she looks at me and she goes, there's nothing going on. These are just standalone poems about cats. Every song is its own song. It just stands by itself. Well, I know I enjoyed the second half of the musical a lot more than I enjoyed the first half when I was no longer looking for a story that doesn't exist. Well, I believe the song of Solomon is essentially the same as that musical Cats. You could follow my story about my experience, but my experience was about the fact there is no story in the musical Cats. Neither does the song present us a story. It's a collection of songs organized into this grand symphony that, that celebrates ideal love. Themes repeat. Ideas swell and contrast. Emotions are, are carried along. It, it is indeed the grandest of all songs. It is the song of songs without a story. Now notice the next words. Which is Solomon's? Unlike a lot of our psalms that, that we read, you'll have a little superscription above the psalms. A lot of the psalms give us a historical background to, to that particular psalm. Well, here there's no historical attempt made to attach the song to any event in Solomon's life or an event within Israel's history. There is a connection made to Solomon. The, but the connection is much more ambiguous than, than our English conveys. The, the language that's used could mean that the song was written by Solomon. It could mean it was collected by Solomon. It could mean it was preserved by Solomon. It could be about Solomon. It could even just simply mean it was dedicated to Solomon. All, all we know for sure is in some sense Solomon is attached to the song. If we lean on our understanding of, of the rest of Scripture, what we know about Solomon, I, I think we can still make some educated assumptions, though. We, we know Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. We, we also know from 1 Kings 4.32 that, that Solomon spoke, we're told, 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs. 1,005 seems pretty specific, doesn't it? We, we have an inspired record that, that tells us that Solomon artistically preserved his wisdom. He used proverbs and songs as ways to preserve his wise understanding of the world that God had given us. Now, we also know that we have an entire book of inspired proverbs, many of them spoken by, by Solomon, others of which we know Solomon collected and, and preserved because they did con convey proverbial truth about the world. 
It's very possible that the song is similar. It, it seems reasonable to me that, that we would see it as similar, that, that quite likely Solomon wrote it, that, that it was under inspiration and, and it becomes his greatest musical work since we know he wrote 1,005 songs. This might be the, the, the pinnacle. At the same time, if, if all that God did was inspire Solomon to collect and organize the song from other sources, that, that still leaves us with a final inspired product of the greatest song possible. That's what we learn from the first verse. At last, let, let's actually look at the song itself. Let, let's begin looking. Over the coming weeks, we'll, we'll divide the song into various sections. Some of the poetic divisions in this song are pretty clear. Others are a bit arbitrary. Today, we're going to just look at the first smallish section. <coughs> Excuse me, verses 2 through 8 of chapter 1. And here, what we find in this very first section is the exhilaration of new love. The exhilaration of new love. Now, I've been married for over 33 years. I can still remember the exhilaration that, that I felt when I found out grace liked me. Those of you that have ever experienced romantic love, you understand what I'm talking about. That, that knowledge that she likes me because I liked her as well. And in the days and months that, that followed as we dated and, and our like deepened to love, I know that, that she occupied a, a lot of my thoughts. Well, as we begin the song, we begin with that early period of love being celebrated. We have three voices, if you will, singing this section of the song. I'm going to follow the NIV. If you happen to have an NIV, it helps us by labeling sections, at least in their understanding. Yeah, I'm going to follow the names that they use. We have the Beloved. She is the young woman. She's a, a female solo voice that, that sings. Then we have the lover. That is the male voice, the, the, the man that has captured the attention of this young woman, a male solo voice. And then we have the friends. The, these are multiple female voices. They, they, they form a, a single part as they sing together. They are friends of the beloved. So we have the beloved, the lover, and the friends. Those are our three voices, if you will, in the song. The beloved is the first voice we hear, the young lady, as the beloved daydreams. Let, let's read her initial words. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. First thing I want to think about is it, it is a bit surprising to hear this young woman begin the song. In, in the, male-orient, the male-oriented culture of the day, it, it's surprising to find that's the beloved here who's presented as taking the initiative in, in expressing her desires for her lover. Now, there's nothing unseemly in her desire. She, she, she longs for his companionship. She, she anticipates the day when her dreams and her longings will be fulfilled. And now she longs for him. Notice the, the shift in perspective. Ver, verse 2 begins with third person, may he kiss me. But then rapidly shifts to a second person. For, for your love is better, your oils, your perfume. 
As the beloved longs for for her lover, she imagines that he's present. and, And in her mind, she begins this conversation directly with him. Now, as I already said, I'm calling the young man her lover, but but let's make sure that we understand what I mean. I I mean that he is the one who has captured her so that she has committed her love to him. He and he alone has her affection. By by using the term lover, I I do not mean that they're engaged in any level of, of premarital sexual activity. I know that's how our world has has corrupted the term, and I'm hesitant to use it, but I couldn't think of a better one. What we have in our verses, this is pure love. The the beloved dreams in her mind of of her love. She yearns for the day when when they will be together. She anticipates the day that she will be his wife. (coughs) Excuse me, I will mention in passing that the reference to king in verse 4 does not necessarily mean that her lover is King Solomon, that the one she loves is the king. It, it could mean that, but it doesn't have to. As we go on, it will have her lover pictured as a shepherd boy. We're dealing with poetry here. We're, we're dealing with pictures that, that are created in our minds. So in the beloved's mind, her lover is envisioned as her king. He, he's majestic and stately, as stately as a king would be. So having introduced her daydream, the beloved's solo is echoed now with the friend's cheer. In, verse, in the second part of verse 4, We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. The chorus sings quickly. Frequently, the, the switch of voices makes it clear, the change of, of verbs make it clear that, that the speaker has changed. Sometimes we, we go from the singular I and me to, as we did here, the plural we, and that makes it clear that we're, we're changing who's singing. Other times we can detect a switch from feminine to masculine voices because Hebrew distinguishes the, the, the difference in most cases. But, but not always. Sometimes we're, we're unable to be sure who's singing at the moment. It is clear, though, as we hit the middle of verse 4, that the plural choir is singing. She's re- they're, they're responding to the soloist. The, the beloved's friends, they're, they're later called the, the daughters of Jerusalem. They, they rejoice with the beloved in her love. They admire this love that she's found. They, they support and, and protect the love of the couple through their friendship. Now, for any of us who have experienced early love in a romantic relationship, you probably can also remember that it was very gratifying to know that your friends approved of your relationship. We want our friends to rejoice with us. Love is so thrilling, it's so exciting. We want our friends to share in the excitement. Well, the beloved's friends do. They share her joy in her love. Another common feature of exhilarating love is, is that the couple cannot seem to spend enough time together. No matter how much time the, you're together, there's never enough. Well, the beloved feels the same way, so she begins to yearn at the end of verse, verse 4. The beloved yearns. Rightly do they love you, pointing to the course, and then she thinks of herself. I am black but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. 
Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretakers of the vineyard, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils yourself beside the flocks of your companions? One of the challenges that, that we have whenever we read biblical poetry is understanding these word pictures that are created. Word pictures are, are very dense. Poetry uses these dense word pictures to, to use just a few words to create large concepts in our minds. And then these concepts are meant to provoke our emotions and convey our emotions along. That The pr- challenge that we have is that the word pictures in the Bible utilize a culture that is very foreign to us. There are ancient references that are unknown to us in our day. There, there are rural and pastoral and agricultural images that, that are strange to our urban experience. We have to work hard to, to understand the images so that then we can understand what's being expressed through the images in the poetry of the song. Well, the beloved wants to be with her lover. She, she examines herself and, and she sees a mixed bag. She's dark in complexion from her time of laboring in the sun. And by the way, the, the word that starts verse 5 there is that she is, means dark skin rather than black. It, it's, in her day, a deeply tan skin was considered unattractive, and that's what she has from all of her time of labor. In their minds, pale light skin was attractive because it, it reflected a member of the upper class who did not have to engage in, in labor. It, it manifested a life of ease. Though the beloved was dark, like the tents of Kedar. At the same time, she, she recognized that she was still beautiful. She was like the curtains of Solomon, likely curtains that would be, have been famed in Jerusalem for their beauty in Solomon's palace. So she's recognizing that her days in the sun have not stolen her beauty, even though there's evidence of her hard labor that that's obvious. She remains beautiful, and, and she's looks at herself and sees this, but then sets the critique of herself aside and simply longs to be with her love. He has looked at her and seen all these things and loves her anyway. She wants to go where he is, but, but she doesn't know where he might be. As we hear her fears of how she might have to wander among all the shepherds in search of him, we're, we're to resonate with this yearning in her heart for the man that she's dreaming about. And in response to her yearning, the chorus again responds as as the friends encourage. Verse 8. If you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. This is one of those verses where it is not fully clear who is singing. Some believe that the lover who is clearly singing in verse 9 begins in verse 8. With, with the way the, the lines of the, of the verse match, though, and, and answer the lines of verse 7, I don't believe it's the lover. I, I follow those who argue that this is the friend's replying. What actually tips my, my thinking in, in that direction is the phrase, most beautiful among women. That, that phrase is used two more times in the song, and, and both times is clearly sung by the chorus as they look at her and they affirm she is the most beautiful above, among women. She radiates with her love. 
So I believe once again for this first of the three is the chorus singing. They're singing to the beloved. And the phrase, most beautiful among women, reinforces the idea that, yes, you have not been robbed of your beauty by your labor. Her friends are affirming that she is beautiful. We have the friends responding to the yearning and the fretting of, her friend, of their friend. The beloved fears that, that she cannot be with her love. So they tell her that if she's not sure where her lover is, then, then she needs to go look for him. She needs to leave her house and go out into his world and look for him. Doesn't that sound exactly like the way good friends would respond to a friend agonizing in indecision? Get yourself up. Stop your daydreaming. Go, go find your man. We, we can understand this, this message from a human perspective pretty easily, can't we? Get up and get about it. We need to remember, though, that here we have more than just a human message. This is God's word. What is God telling us? This song was given under inspiration. What is God telling us? There, there's no preamble. There, there's no backstory. We're just suddenly coming upon a young woman in love, yearning for the one she loves, fearful that she cannot find him. And her friends respond by telling her to go out there and look for him. Enter his world. Search for the one she loves. Now, there are a lot of stanzas to go in this large, complex song. And in those stanzas, we're going to find a lot of lessons. But I think we've gone far enough if we ask this question, what is this telling us? As the friends are answering this woman's yearning, I think we've gone far enough to identify an initial lesson this morning. What the lesson that we should see from the first eight verses, lesson number one, is that love is worth pursuing as a God-given gift. Love is worth pursuing as a God-given gift. Now, I'm not saying that if you're single here this morning that you need to leave and go out desperately looking for a romantic relationship. We need to leave those things in the providence of God. We, we understand that. I hope if not, I'm stating that. We need to leave that in the providence of God. But at the same time, I am saying that such a relationship to those whom God grants it should be pursued with joy. It is a gift from God. The, the beginning of the song raises the value of love by showing that it is not only approved by God, but it is given as a good gift from God. We should value the thrill of, of romantic love between a man and a woman. We, we should celebrate when it's found in a pure form. We should honor it. We should intentionally pursue it if God brings it into our lives. Now, this has immediate application to husbands and wives. We should pursue the relationship that God has given us as a God-given gift. There, there's also ap, ap, applicability. I, my mouth is stumbling today. This is applicable to any single person who, who God brings a, someone into a path. When God brings a, a valid potential romantic interest into your path, there's application here. It's, it's to be pursued. Notice I say valid potential partner because there, there are a lot of considerations that need to go into who makes up a valid partner to pursue. 
And some of those will come out as we go through the song. Some of those we get in other places of Scripture. But should God bring a valid person along, love is worth pursuing as a God-given gift. We should understand that. We should also recognize today that we all are the recipients of the pursuit of the purest love. Our Savior entered our world in search of us because he was motivated by perfect love. The love of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the purest of all love, he pursued us, and then he showered us with his redeeming love. We have small glimpses of idyllic love between men and women today, and and those small glimpses should, should help us Reflect on the gift that God has given us through the, our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we look at the Song of Solomon and we see idyllic love fleshed out in full, we should rejoice that we have received love from the one who pursued us. This is the first lesson that I'll leave us with this morning. Love is worth pursuing as a God-given gift. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this series, I pray that you would use it in our lives. Use it in our lives personally, individually, but Father, may you also use it collectively in the life of our church. May we stand as a testimony to the community around us, a testimony of pure love, the way that you intend love to be. May our marriages hold forth as as pictures of love, and may we individually reflect the love of Christ to others. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word fully as we go forward so that we can become more Christ-like ourselves. We pray this in his name. Amen.